everyone and welcome to the Thriving Minds podcast. I'm Professor Selena Bartlett and today I'm joined by Dr. Mark Williams. And uh, it's quite nice because we have two neuroscientists talking to each other today and we're going to try and not go into the details as we'd probably love to do. But today we're joined by Dr. Mark Williams, who is the Professor of Cognitive Neuroscience at Macquarie University. And he's been studying the brain for 20 years, and he's got extensive experience at both MIT and back in Australia, winning many awards and really prestigious fellowships, which you can read about in links to the podcast. So we're really lucky because he's just about to, or in the middle of writing a book and releasing a new book all about social connection. And that's kind of been his research area, and he's going to tell us a lot about that today. So thank you, Mark, for joining us. And do you want to tell the audience a little bit about yourself? Thank you, Selena. Um, yeah, so I, I am a cognitive neuroscientist. I actually took voluntary redundancy um, at the end of last year. Um, I decided I wanted to spend more time getting uh, the research out there into the community. Um, I spent a lot of 20, over 20 years chatting to scientists, um, but I wanted to really translate a lot of that research to the community. And I now work with schools um, and businesses on, on bringing that to the forefront, but it also meant that I could finally write a book that I've been meaning to write for about 20, 15 years, maybe, um, which is based on a lot of my research, but also um, brings together a lot of other research in the area on social connection um, and how we can connect better and how a lot of the apps and social media and so on are, are using our social connection to actually draw us away from each other um, and make a lot of money from our attention uh, which is causing issues in society as well. So it's it's got a lot of positive aspects to it, but also a few warnings and how to get around those issues. So can we tell the audience a little bit about, about your background? Like how did how did you become a cognitive neuroscientist and why? Uh -huh. And then why yeah, did you want to start writing this book 15 years ago? Um, I think that'd be really helpful to understand that. Yeah, that's um, that's a big story. Um, yeah, so I actually I, I grew up in a small country town. I was actually um, I didn't go to school for a lot of my years, and I left school um, in a state where I wasn't really ready to go to university. So I didn't actually get my HSC until I was twenty five. I went back to school at the age of twenty five, got my HSC. Um, and then went on to university. Um, I did a double degree in physiology and in psychology. So I did both um, what they call the hard science and the, the uh, soft science. Um, and I had a physiology professor who I found fascinating, who um, studied perception uh, through physiology um, and looking at the, the fact that we don't have access to the real world, that our brains create this uh, illusion, which is in our heads, based on information that we receive, but that information isn't actually what we actually perceive. Um, and that made me really fascinated by um, how the brain puts together this world that we actually see, rather than actually a, a, a mirror of the actual world. Um, and that, that took me down the route of neuroscience, um, but because I also had that psychology background, um, I was interested in neuroscience from a human perspective and cognitive neuroscience was just sort of in its infancy then. Um, there wasn't any PhDs here in Australia in that area. So I did a PhD in medicine um, and then went to Melbourne University for a few years. I was actually working on a big grant 
for Unilever, um, looking at whether or not there was any way of using neuroimaging, that is MRIs, to ascertain what people actually liked. So Unilever were, of course, were interested in whether their products would actually sell. I was interested in whether or not we can actually use uh, MRI to look at what people do and don't like. And so we were looking at areas like- the Can I just say to, um, for the people listening, neuroimaging means imaging your brain. And this has been really, really a major advance in the field that's really fundamentally shifted something we couldn't see before, right? We couldn't see in the brain until very recently. Right. Yeah, that's that's really been the big shift between neuroscience, fundamental neuroscience and cognitive neuroscience is before we could only really look in the brain of, 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 of animals, sorry, such as rats and monkeys and so on. Um, the real shift came when we could start looking at wake human beings um, and looking at human brains because the human brain is very different to a rat brain, for example. And so finding out um, how the human brain does, especially when it comes to social cognition, um, was really, really exciting. Um, so I, I was lucky enough to be one of the first in Australia to do functional MRIs. Um, I spent a lot of time in the basement at St Vincent Hospital trying to set this thing up, um, which was great being um, funded by a, a large company like Unilever. We had the funding to actually waste, well, not waste time, but spend time in developing this new technology. Um, and then I was lucky enough to get an HMRC grant to go to uh, America and work at the McGovern Institute for Brain Research at MIT, um, where I really yeah, cut my teeth in neuroimaging. Um, I developed new sequences, I, uh, which, which is how we do the imaging, how we're able to, to get pictures of the brain actually working rather than just static pictures, which probably a lot of people are all, have seen those static pictures of the brain. What we do is we do it much, much quicker. And so we can actually look at blood flow. And from that, we can infer uh, what areas of the brain are actually active. Um, and what was interesting is that when I was at MIT, um, I was studying social cognition, but I was right. also there when just, both... Uh, sorry to interrupt. Can you tell the audience what you mean by social cognition? Because some people, because ah. they, they are um, fundamental terms for us, but I think that it's really great to break it right down so people have a really great understanding because this is really important, isn't it, in terms of our species? Yeah, absolutely. So social cognition is our ability to, to, um, uh, to be, be social with each other. So recognising other people's emotions, recognising their intentions, recognising who they are to begin with because that's really important, um, and then understanding both my own emotions, how I'm feeling and how they're feeling, and then being able to interact with each other, which is really fundamental, again, to us as human beings, because we are the most connected species on, on the planet, right? We're more connected than any other species there is. There's no other species that actually co cooperates or is social across groups. So most species have groups that they they live within, but they don't do that across groups and they don't collaborate across groups. Whereas, you, you know, I'm, I'm working on a laptop now. <laughs> Components of that laptop have come from all over the world, um, which is completely unique idea in the animal kingdom for, for people to collaborate across groups like that. Um, and so to do that, we've actually got to be able to get along. And we do that by actual, by social cognition, by understanding what the other person's thinking and what we're thinking and then being able to collaborate with each other, which is vital for us as humans. Um, so that's sort of a, a little summary of social cognition yeah. and what I, yeah. I find so fascinating because it is so fundamental to us 
as human beings. Um, when I was at MIT, it was a really interesting time because both Mark Zuckerberg had recently um, expanded uh, Facebook. So Facebook was only available to students at MIT and, and Harvard because he was at Harvard yep. University. Yep. Mm -hmm. um, and a lot of my RAs were actually using Facebook. Um, well, they were actually using Hot or Not before that because that was the precursor to Facebook um, and where you just ranked mm -hmm. um, girls on whether or not they were hot or not. Yes, um, and that I remember that. Facebook. Yeah, which was pretty horrendous. It is. <laughs> um, a little app. Um, and that, that evolved in Facebook, which is why it's called Facebook, because it was just about seeing the students' faces so they could decide whether or not they wanted to date them. Um, so that was evolving. Um, and at the same time, the first iPhone came out. So first iPhone came out in the US when I was at MIT, which was, was a big um, thing that happened. What was really interesting was that the first iPhone wasn't actually paid and developed by um, Mac itself. It was actually AT&T that funded about 60 70% of the research behind the iPhone um, because they wanted full rights to it. So you could only actually be on AT&T when you actually bought an iPhone mm -hmm. when they first came out and they were locked. So you couldn't actually put apps on them. You couldn't program, you couldn't do anything like that. Within a couple of hours of the release of the iPhone, MIT students released an app which allowed you to unlock the iPhone so you can actually put it on other servers, but also so you could do stuff on it because they went, oh, this is a cool little computer that I want to actually use. Um, within a couple of hours, Mac then put um, a little patch on the iPhone so that it would shut down if you use that patch. And then this went backwards and forwards between students and so on. Mac, um, Macintosh, um, actually threatened to sue students at um, MIT and other people who were doing this. Um, but then, of course, they had this brainwave, which was, oh, we've got all these developers who want to play with this thing. And so therefore, let's, let's, let's release this. Let's open this up and let them develop it. But let's have this Apple Ice store where they can put all these apps, where they can sell them. And of course, that created this crazy situation where you've got millions and millions of apps and they're all competing for your attention. They're all competing, right? Most of them are very, very cheap. What they're all looking for is for you to actually use them, get addicted to them, so that that's the app you, you are gonna promote and you're gonna actually stay on so they can actually make money. So it created this, this crazy situation where we have millions of people competing for your attention now um, on these iPhones, which of course has now caused these addiction problems that we're seeing. So um, yeah, it's been an interesting evolution and, and I've been watching it from probably too close um, and, and now <laughs> I've um, yeah really delved into it and I spent a lot of time working with schools and with parents and businesses on getting our attention back because the big problem is we're not as productive now as we used to be because of the fact that we're constantly being uh, cued by these things we're constantly checking our phones we're constantly checking emails we're constantly checking all these other things and it's it is literally causing depression and anxiety and stress um but it's also killing our productivity um yeah so, so we really need to do better so maybe we should uh talk a little bit about how you got interested in um face facial recognition and and like we want to tell the audience a little bit about how the brain works here yeah. So how, how the, how, you know, we're talking a lot about the iPhones and the devices, but they're basically tuned very well for Pavlovian conditioning, meaning, you know, the beeps and the lights and the notifications. That's completely how dogs learn 
to eat mm-hmm. food or sit, to sit, etc. The blue, the blackberry, I remember that. I got addicted to that big time with its red light. And then I'm like, oh my God, this is Pavlovian conditioning. Yeah. Um, yeah very, but, very you know, but let's talk about the network in the brain because you yeah. are a cognitive neuroscientist. And this is the bit that people miss, I believe, is the um, what we mean by how they grab our attention, what we mean by why we're so good at recognizing faces. You talk a lot about in your opening chapters of your new book about how um, this old part of the brain is really highly tuned for us to recognize people. You call it, it's the amygdala, and that's a really old, old part of the brain. And that's because it's so important. It keeps us alive. So do you want to talk a little bit about how you got into that area as a social cognition neuroscientist and what that actually means? Yeah. So, yeah, I I find it fascinating. I actually started off um, my research in autism. Um, I was actually working with teenagers um, and and I was actually living in a a, a, a residential home with a bunch of teenagers with autism um, and also behavioural issues. Um, and then I started doing research. My honours work was actually in autism um, and I was going to go on and do a PhD in autism. But what I found really interesting is at the same time as working in the home, I was also working um, in a high-functioning centre where we were trying to train um, adults and teenagers who had what we called Asperger's back then. We now call it high-functioning autism. Um, These were people who were extremely intelligent, but they were unable to recognise faces. They were unable to um, recognise intentions of others and emotions of others. Um, And so they had a lot of trouble in their life. So I saw that. um, And I also saw the individuals with behavioural issues who were also just responding badly to um, social cues. And so I was like, well, I, I want to work with these people and try and work out a way of actually training them better. I realised that we actually didn't know much about how fundamental um, social cognition actually works. So how we actually recognise faces and how we actually recognise emotions. So I went, hang on, I've got to go a step back and I've actually got to look at it in normal people. So that's why I went back and looked at it in normal. So I actually spent the rest of my career looking at it in normals rather than looking at it in autism because we still didn't have a good fundamental understanding of it in normal people. So how could we then look at it in, in autism? So that's why I came back. And so basically what we know now is... Yeah, that'd be great. I think the audience, yeah. I, I, many questions in this, this space around autism and social cognition. I, I think maybe you should just talk a little bit about that. Yep. So what, what, we, what we now know is that um, we have multiple areas in the brain which are actually dedicated just to face perception, just to recognising who an individual is, because it's actually a complicated and difficult thing to actually do. Um, because most faces are, are very, well, all faces are very similar, but we're able to recognise individuals within this really similar group um, very, very easily. And we're able to recognise hundreds of thousands of different faces, but not only who the individual is, but also if they're related. So we can tell whether or not someone's from the same family or a different family. We can tell their race. We can tell their um, sex. We can tell usually approximate age, although that's becoming harder these days because people keep manipulating their faces in different (laughs) ways. Um, And we can recognise people over many, many years. So you can meet someone as a kid and then not see them for 20, 25 years. Now their faces actually changed a lot, but you can still recognise them. And we now know that you can do that because we don't recognise them based on just the skin and the colour and the hair and all these things. We recognise it based on... um, the ratio of the face. So how far 
how distant the eyes are, how distant the mouth is from the eyes, how far up the nose is. So it's actually those ratios that we actually use. And what we have is we have a template face, which is the average face. And then we have basically all of the deviations from that, which is all the individuals that we actually know. That's really interesting from the point of view of we, we know that we actually perceive different races differently because we don't have the same we don't have a template for those other races. And so different races are actually more different to each other than faces of different families within the same race. Um, and the more you see a particular race, the more your template gets tuned for that race, but tuned away from all the other races, um, which means that not only do we not recognise people as easily from other races, so... Um, you, you can't identify someone from a different race as easily as you can from, from, from a race that you see a lot of. And it's not your race, it's what you see a lot of. So that's a really good, uh, important uh, distinction there. But a face that you see a lot of. But also we um, orient to faces that are different to, to our template. So we actually orient more quickly to faces of different races or, or different races to the ones that we see the most of. So that means that if you don't see a lot of a particular race and then you go into a crowd, you're more likely to orient to the person of that race, um, which of course can cause a lot of anxiety with people because they're oriented to, to the thing that's different to what they're actually used to rather than the same as what they're actually used to. And that brings to, us to the old part of the brain, doesn't it? The What yeah, we like to call yeah. social anxiety or the detector. So that's of social yeah, yeah. So that's the amygdala. So we, we showed, I showed very early on, which is really controversial at the time, but that our face template is actually processes that information automatically without our awareness. So you don't actually even have to be aware that a face is there and you actually process what the, who, well, not what the face is, but that, that there's a face there and whether it's potentially dangerous and that then activates your amygdala which of course is the center of our brain, which activates our fight or flight response. So that increases our heart rate, increases uh, blood supply to our muscles, decreases blood supply to your, uh, to your organs uh, and so on. And, and that is what makes us feel anxious. Yeah, so it's exactly the same response as feeling anxious is your fight or flight response. Your fight or flight response is supposed to make you either be more aware and then either fight whatever it is that's causing that response or run away from whatever is causing that response. But most people, of course, because we live in an environment where we're safe, we don't run away and we don't fight, but we still get this anxious feeling. Um, and that, we believe, an overactive amygdala is the reason for social anxiety. That is that when you're in social environment where your face perception template is actually going off, which is activating your amygdala and then causing this response of your heart fluttering and all the rest of it causes the anxiety. But it's it's only an automatic response that we have so that we can recognise what could be potentially a danger, not actually you getting anxious, but rather you feeling yeah, this fight or flight response, yes. which is then making you feel as though you're anxious. And, and this is what you talk about a lot about in your book about how this is leading to, you know, more extreme views, extreme, you know, extremism. Really, and this also, the thing that came to my mind, I'm really interested in your, because we're talking a lot about the Me Too movement and things like that in Australia right now and overseas. This brings us to, if you're not used to hanging around with people of the, of different sexes. Mm -hmm. 
then yeah, so is, is that equivalent or not? Yeah, so male faces and female faces are different um, in structure. Males, because of testosterone, have a larger forehead and we have a, a chunkier face overall. And so template, if you see a lot of male faces, your template is going to be different than if you see a lot of female faces. And so, again, it's, it's just an automatic response to anything that deviates too far from that template. So if you're seeing a lot of male faces and you see a female face or in your periphery, there's a female face, you'll orient to that quicker than you would if it wasn't. Um, what's interesting also is we found that angry male faces actually get oriented to quicker than any other face. So we actually orient towards male angry faces more than anything else. But again, that's probably a learnt response because males mm -hmm. are seen as more aggressive. Yeah. Whether or not they actually are more aggressive, of course, is a little controversial. One. Have you ever been asked the question about how this, um, because of when we go to school is between zero and 18 and, and Australia has a lot of single sex schools, um, which um, is like hangover, but What's your opinion about that? Have you thought about thought through that, or has anyone asked you these questions about how that that contribution to compared to say other societies, Scandinavian, etc., where gender balance is not really an issue? Yeah, I, I, I think it's I, I, there's multiple issues with um, gendered schools or sex specific, like single sex schools. Um, one of them is this that you're always uh, surrounded by people of this one, one sex and therefore your template is going to be moulded by that. It's going to be specifically moulded by that. Secondly, what you're telling students is that these two sexes are different, that this other sex has to be separated from you for a reason, right? Why else would you separate them? And so therefore, you're actually training students to believe that they're different in some way. I mean, men aren't from Mars and women aren't from Venus. We're actually more similar to each other than we are different to each other. Our gen genetic material, the only difference between males and females is the Y chromosome, because we both have the X, but the Y is different. And the Y chromosome is only 3% of our chromosomes, right? It's only 3% of our genetic material is actually different. So there's a far more similarities between us than differences. And so to be putting kids into, I mean, it frustrates me when I see primary school and they get them to line up in separate lines. It's like, there's no difference between these kids. Why are you already telling them they're different? But by putting them in separate schools, you're telling them they're different. So therefore they're going to grow up believing they're actually different. And what, some you're, you're saying also they're training their brain, the facial recognition parts of the brain. These are physical connections that we're talking about training. It's like, like a muscle, right? So you're tra and you're training the brain to be really strongly oriented and have an automatic response that makes you feel safe to something similar, but then you're going to orient yourself once you're out of that circle and now you're in a mixed setting, you're going to orient yourself to something opposite and that's going to in incur social anxiety. Yeah, absolutely. Potentially for people yeah. that aren't used to being around, you know, in both directions. So you can see yeah. already how that can create a lot of, Potential, I mean, potential problems, for example, for yeah. us to work together and for us to become more balanced across all parts of our organisations, for example. Yeah, absolutely. And so we, we not only have this automatic response to them, but then we also have this also explicit, you know, learning that they're actually different. And so, you know, those two things combined are going to cause all sorts of issues when they actually then have to come together because they've got to work together, right? At some stage, they're going to have to 
you know, we've asked, our, our species is not going to go on if we don't mate. Um, and so at some stage, they're actually going to have to come together and actually work together to have children and to work in offices and do all these things. And so to have them separated uh, um, at school, it, it, it makes no sense. There's, there's lots of reasons not to do it, and I don't see any reason to do it at all. And uh, back to just quickly, because I know that we were talking about autism for a small section there before we went to the amygdala. So did you actually image um, and work in, the, in that space, Mark? No, so I did, um, original research was all behavioural research that I was doing, um, and then a, a lot of actual clinical work that I was doing with this group, but I, I never actually did any imaging with them. I, I learned the imaging as soon as I finished that, um, and we never went on. We never went back. I never went back to autism, unfortunately. I would have liked to have, but I didn't, um, yeah, go back to actually doing the imaging stuff. Um, is there anyone that, do, are you, you must be um, aware of people that are doing that. Yeah, I don't. The neuroimaging of, in autism, I don't think we understand the social cognition well enough in normals yet to actually get onto that. I know there is a lot of the work there, but it's still very confusing. <laughs> and then so, um, which I think is because we still haven't really, really cemented down how it works in normal people yet. And I think we need to do that, the basic research first, right. before we can go on to actually see, because there is a lot of controversy still in that area. Um, I, I do, I know a couple of great researchers who are doing behavioral work in that area. Um, which is really interesting. Um, but I mean, what's most interesting is that you, it's, it's virtually impossible to actually teach these individuals how to social cognition. Um, and, and that's something that I find fascinating. Is that, but, but they haven't seen any difference in the neural networks underlying facial recognition of all of those subset of networks at all. If it's They have. They have, but the groups are usually small um, right. because it's clinical okay. work, yeah. and so there's a lot of con there's a lot of variability in the findings that they've seen. Yeah. Some have seen um, fusiform face area, which is an area involved in face perception. Um, normal FFA in some people in some people with autism. Other groups haven't seen that. Some people have seen FFA for for other objects like greebles and things, but right. not for faces. And so it's really confusing. So I, I and I think a lot of that has to do with the fact that we don't really understand it in humans, in normals yet, to actually then transfer that to, to autism. Plus the groups are usually so small um, when they do those studies. Yeah. The other thing, um, so yeah, uh, really fascinating work. The other thing that really interested me from your book is about bullying. And um, you talk a lot about that in the first few paragraphs, which is so fascinating because you grew up in a small country town and how being in the in-group versus the out-group, this is every day and it's actually getting amplified more because of social media right now. And do you want to discuss that a little bit? Because I think a lot of parents would be interested in that. And what yeah, to do so, about it. <laughs> <laughs> we, yeah, what to do about it, it's the hardest thing. Um, again, we, we are, as humans, are, are, are really connected species, right? We, we have evolved all these really good mechanisms in our brain and more of our brain's active to, to social cognition, to, to actually talking to someone than anything else we do. So our brain's really wired for that. But that also brings with it the opposite side, which is we know who's part of our in-group, but that also means we automatically know who's part of our out-group. And our whole brain's wired up for that. And it's, it was important for us a million years ago because we needed to know who was in our, our social group, who was in our little tribe, 
because we could trust those people. And then we needed to know who wasn't in our little tribe because they could be potentially dangerous, right? And, and that was really important. Of course, now that we're in multicultural societies or we're at schools and so on, that's become more of an issue. And it's a big issue for schools because if a kid doesn't feel as though they're part of that in-group, if they don't feel as though the school is their in-group, they don't learn from them. You can't learn from someone who's not part of your in-group. And that, of course, is an evolutionary um, adaptation. Our brains don't learn from people who aren't part of our in-group because it wouldn't have been healthy to do that. Yeah. So you needed to know who was part of your in-group before you could actually learn from them. Um, but also, we have a fear response or we have that amygdala response to anyone who's part of our out-group. So we automatically process who's part of our group and we have that automatic response to it. And of course that's a fight or flight response. So you're either going to fight that person or you're going to run away from that person. And that's where the bullying comes in. Kids who don't feel as though they're part of that group, part of that school group, become part of the out group. Now, if you're part of the out group, that means the people who are part of the in group are the out group for you. So you're going to have that fight or flight response against them, against those kids that are part of the in group. And that's what usually happens. Kids who get bullied are usually the kids who get along well with the teacher, they're actually part of the school group. And it's usually the kids who are in the out group who don't feel as though they're part of that, that are the ones that become the bullies, that, that actually bully the ones. And they have that fear of flight, they have that response, that fight or flight response, and they fight rather than flight. They, they, they actually, you know, will bully someone rather than run away from them. Right, yeah. What we need to do is bring those bullies in. We need to break, make the school one big community where everyone feels connected. Everyone's part of that in-group. And that's the issue we have now because we have so many groups that kids are, are, are being pulled to be part of. Um, you know, TikTok is, is basically pulling your children into groups that they then feel as though, and that they use amazing algorithms and background to do that. Now, most of these social media apps are so popular because that's what they do. They group people to say that you're part of that in-group so that everyone who's not part of that in-group is the accurate. Um, and I think that's a lot of the problems that schools have is a lot of these kids feel as though they're part of a different group and not part of the school group. And we yeah. need to bring them back into that school group. And, and I think teachers need to work on that more. And and it's also absolutely, and but it's also a systems thing, isn't it? Because mm -hmm. uh, it's it's related to having to average everybody. No, everyone's got to mm -hmm. be the same, learning the same thing, and have the same interests. I.e., in Queensland, it's NAPLAN. Uh, they've got to get the best ATAR score. Uh, to get into the best this and that. And um, one of the schools that I really love, Kelvin Grove State College, they see 3,200 kids as having 3,200 different pathways and they try and op offer a wide variety of opportunities, meaning that you do have more opportunity for in-groups or to find places like whether it's a golfing, you're really good at golf or whether you're really good at carpentry or whether you're really good at mathematics or art or and, and that's the beauty of having a really big school in that sense. It also comes with lots of probably other problems. <laughs> but, yeah, um, yeah. yeah, it's a challenge, yeah, it isn't is, it? It is a challenge. I mean, uh, you, you mentioned NAPLAN. I, the thing that drives me crazy is we, we now know a lot about how the brain learns and I've done a lot of work in that area. And one of the things that we know and all the research shows is that the worst time to test a child 
is after they learn something. So things like NAPLAN, where you train them on topics and then test them, they forget more afterwards in that situation than any other situation. So by actually testing them afterwards, we know we're actually training them to forget. Because we now know that mem our memory isn't actually about us remembering the past, it's for us to do things in the future. Now, if your brain is being told, you have to learn this and then you're gonna do a test and then you don't need it anymore, kids are gonna forget it and they do. We know that kids, after they've learned something and then they're tested on it, they then forget it. They don't remember it for afterwards because there's no reason to do that. We've got to stop all this testing that we're doing on kids after the fact, because it doesn't actually work. It actually results in them forgetting more. Um, the best way, of course, to test is before they actually do the work. Yeah, and I think that this is the issue, right? We everything's based on testing everything yeah yeah but it doesn't it's me like testing is so meaningless because what we're doing is we're getting a snapshot of a child not based on what they know because as you know your brain um, isn't just a simple recall system where anything that's in your memory you'll actually recall. It requires you retrieving that information and therefore being able to retrieve it. So just because a student does badly on a test doesn't mean they don't know the information. It just means that they've had trouble possibly retrieving that information. That could be for multiple reasons. That could be because they're very anxious about the test. That could be because they had a fight with their dad in the morning and they're feeling sad about that. That could be because they uh, tripped over as they were coming in and they're feeling embarrassed about that. There's a whole number of reasons why a kid's gonna do badly on a test at any stage. And so therefore determining, you know, where a kid can go next based on a test is, is ludicrous because what your test is doing is not actually assessing what they know. It's assessing how they're feeling at the time, um, you know, how relaxed they are, how good they are at doing tests, how confident they are, like a whole barrage of different things, which are more usually about personality than actually about how much they know. Um, so, yeah, think, we, we need um, different ways. <laughs> I think the one thing genetics has shown that the only thing that I can believe out of identical twin studies is one thing it predicts is um, NAPLAN or the equivalent in America scores. That's the only thing it predicts is similar. So you're actually born with a brain that you've inherited that can be really good at rote learning or because mm -hmm. you know, most learning in classrooms is auditory. You have to listen mm -hmm. and then remember. And a lot of people can't do that. Most of us are visual learners, as you've recognized because of our face but probably the networks in our brain for attention and facial recognition. You know, 80% mm -hmm. of learners are visual. They're not auditory learners, but mostly all of, everything's catered towards people that have brains for that. And most of the research is showing now that I teach kids today is to show, tell, and then do. So you show them what you're going to teach them and then you tell them what you're going to teach them, as we traditionally would, and then you let them do it. Um, and that's the best way to actually teach kids because then it's going through, you know, multiple different channels um, and therefore you get better multisensory learning, which is really important for memory formation. Um, and and it doesn't matter who the kid is, they're going to actually you know, get involved in that sort of thing because a lot of kids, some kids like to be just told what they're going to, what, what they need to learn but then other kids actually like to do it themselves so actually feel it and do it and learn more that way and we know all kids if they do multiple different ways then they learn the best what the best that way so you know that's that's been shown over and over again in research 
um, that it's the best way to do it. Um, teachers just need to be given time to do it. We have you know these packed curriculums and we have all this admin stuff that I see teachers having to, to do every day um, and ridiculous programs that they have um, that are meaningless that they're supposed to run that, that aren't teaching the kids what they need to actually know. If I ran a school, <laughs> I'd start it an hour later because we know just starting a school an hour later results in big increase in um, learning because the kids who are tired don't learn. So just start the school an hour later and then finish an hour later and get them to read for, depending on the age of the kid, between half an hour and an hour every day. Because it doesn't matter what area you're going to, reading is so important for us as human beings. But reading is a really, really new ability that we don't have it's not automatic it's not something we automatically learn it's something that we need to learn through the process of doing it and so i would get kids to to read yeah at least half an hour each day up to an hour each day anything they want because then you generate if you do it everybody in the school all does it at the same time you generate this whole um, ethos around reading and the kids then start talking to each other about the books they're reading or the things they're reading and it doesn't matter what they read i mean i learned how to read reading surfing magazines because that was the only thing I was interested in. But it doesn't matter. I can read now. <laughs> I can read whatever I want now because I did that. My son wasn't interested in reading at all until he started collecting Pokemon cards and wanting to play Pokemon, which meant he needed to read because he needed to be able to read the cards. And so then he wanted to learn how to read and he learned how to read reading Pokemon cards. So it doesn't matter what they're reading. As long as you're reading, as long as you're doing that actual reading Period. Um, and uh, can and I, I think, add to um, this? There's, there's such a race to thrive by five, and these are great things like initiatives to care about children's brain development. But what's what's starting to happen though is adults structuring more and more structure on kids under five, and um, less play. And play has oh, yeah. been demonstrated to be so good for social cognition and for learning as well, yes. and especially outside in nature. Um, and not, and not structured but unstructured and there's so much evidence for this as well and uh, there's a, this paper that just came out in America demonstrating that a really structured program in a low socioeconomic county across the whole state end up causing worse outcomes for children worse outcomes yeah yeah no it is and mathematics it's hugely important for multiple things I mean one of the most important things and I'm a social neuroscientist so it's the thing that I really find frustrating is that you don't learn how to communicate in social settings by having structure to what you're actually doing right social settings aren't structured they're very dynamic um, and strange things happen and people get upset about things you don't realize and there's lots of people around and you're going to interrupt it and all these things you know putting people in structured environments constantly means that they don't learn all of those things you've got to learn how to negotiate you know when we were young at least when I was young I grew up in a small country town we used to go out in the morning and we just do whatever and then we come back at night and that meant that yeah occasionally we got in a fight with someone yeah occasionally we you know had disagreements yes occasionally someone got upset but we learned to negotiate those things we learned what was right and what wasn't right how to treat someone and how not to treat someone you lost friends and you gained friends and all these things and they're all vitally important but if you're in a structure if you're told 
these are the group of friends that you're actually that you have to have because they're in your soccer team or they're in your maths class after school or they're in your then you don't have any of that negotiation going on you don't have any of those dynamic things going on and and these are really so important for us as humans because we're then going to go into workforces where we're again going to have to negotiate these things we're going to have to relate to people and understand people and collaborate with people and lead people and to do that, you need to actually understand all of those processes that when kids aren't having the opportunity to learn and they need to learn it because we know the brain is either use it or lose it. But what happens before that is you've got to develop it beforehand, right? And kids aren't developing these things to even get to a stage where they've got to use it or lose it. And that really scares me. And the pandemic's really amplifying that. I'm hearing a lot of feedback about kids playing up at school now, not being able to get along with each other, et cetera. Um, uh, So as parents listening or educators listening, what would be your top three things that you've learned that could really make a difference to help some people, some strategies? What would you do? You're a parent and um, you're out in schools talking about devices and all of these things, but what would be the top three things you think have made a big difference for people making a change? Because they'll say it's all very well. Well, we, we are in this economy. This is what is happening right now. But what would you suggest as maybe just three things that people could think about? Yeah. Um, number one is devices in schools. Australia is number one in the world for devices in schools, a number of devices in schools, how long kids stay on devices each day. And we are slipping when it comes to learning, like our learning results are disgusting compared to most countries, most OECD countries, right? We've, we've been slipping on science, maths and literature for, for, for almost a decade now. So we need to rethink that. Phone, ban on phones during the day at schools. I, I see the schools I work with, once we actually get the phones locked up in the lockers, the kids start actually playing at lunchtime. They start socialising with each other. They start spending time out in nature and doing things together rather than being on devices. And that, I think, is critical. I, you know, rethinking the way we're using devices in schools and banning the mobile phones is, is really critical. The other thing is um, spending time with people is the best drug we have for depression and anxiety and uh, suicide prevention and so on. There isn't a drug that we can take that is as good as actually socialising, spending time with people. So actually organising to have time with people, both us as adults where you sit down with someone face-to-face and have a chat over coffee without the device there, (laughs) Um, and kids doing the same thing, just having time together without devices there. As soon as you put a device there, conversation actually gets much shallower. So there's a lot of research now showing our conversations are more shallow when there's a device somewhere nearby. So put your device away and have a real conversation with someone. It's better for your brain than anything else you can do. It staves off Alzheimer's. It staves off other degenerative diseases. Um, It results in better um, mental health in relation to depression, anxiety, stress, and so on. So spending time together is so important. It is difficult because of that issue that we are talking about before. The more time you spend away from people, the more difficult it is to then go and chat to someone because we haven't been doing it and we have our brains are use it or lose it. We haven't been using it for the last two years. And so a lot of those mechanisms aren't working as well as they should be. But that's something we need to rectify, right? You, if, you, if, you, for some, if you 
sprain your ankle and you can't do exercise for three months, four months, it's hard to then get out there and do exercise. But you know you've got to do it. Otherwise, you get big and fat and you end up with other diseases that you don't want. So you force yourself to do it. It's the same with socialising. You haven't done it for a while. Yes, it's going to be anxiety provoking, but you've got to actually do it. Otherwise, it's just going to atrophy more and you're going to have more and more issues and it's going to be harder every day you don't do it. So we need to do it. The kids need to do it. Kids need to play. Kids need to actually get out there and play and spend time with each other. Great. That, I think that's was wonderful. That <laughs> yes, no, I agree. And and these are really difficult things for some people. And I, I've been in many airports now where every single member of in the airport is on their phone. Um, it's it's. I mean, people, everyone's on their phone everywhere now, more or less. Yeah, and it's scary. Like I see kids on. Uh, iPads at, at, at cafes um, and I see kids, you know, I have friends who let their kids read on screens. We, we now know that if a child learns to, to read on a screen, the um, white matter tracks connecting all of the areas involved in reading are far, are fewer, significantly fewer white matter tracks are formed when you learn how to read on a screen versus learning to read on paper. So there's significant lack of development of the brain and white matter tracks of course are the, those tracks that connect different areas and allow different areas to talk to each other that's significantly affected and that's been now shown in three or four different studies and the NIH have now invested huge amounts of money into studying this long over, over a long period of time because of how concerned they are about it so you know kids need to be learning how to read on books um, and Kids need to be getting out in nature and actually experiencing nature. Yeah, that was going to be my, these, yeah, my question was going to be, can being in nature, jumping in the ocean or exercising, can that mitigate some of the impact that we've had already from all of us, from the pandemic, from, you know, us being on devices nonstop? Can that help to overcome some of these issues that have developed in the brain in terms of development? Yeah, it's a great question. I, I, I hope so. I don't know whether we know that yet. I don't think we know the outcome of everything that's happened over the last two years. It's been a pretty scary experiment for us all. Um, but I think the scarier experiment is the one that we had control over, which is the devices over the last 10 years, which has caused an even bigger problem, right? If we hadn't had that beforehand, we probably wouldn't be as bad as we are now. Because we now know that um, more time you spend on a device, the more likely you are to have depression, anxiety. I mean, the, the papers are, are overwhelming now um, regarding all of the negative impacts of just screen time on teenagers and on kids. Um, so, you know, we really need to think about that. Um, we know that the earlier a child has a device or the more time they spend on a device, the more likely they are to be diagnosed with ADHD um, or autism. So, you know, that to me says everything. There's now provinces in China where they ban mobile phones for a child under the age of 16. Um, wow. And you can actually be imprisoned if you give a child under the age of 16 really? a mobile phone. Yeah, because of all the research that's coming out and, of course, all their health systems are paid by the government so they don't want to be overwhelmed by all But the also it's a control thing too, isn't it? It controls the information. Yeah, although they have that pretty well controlled anyway. So the information... But still, it's another thing. Well it's another way, yeah. additional way. Yeah. Yeah. I, and I'm not a, saying here we should be going no, to that no, extreme. No. But, no, but you know, I understand what you're saying. To be aware. Yeah. 
Um, yeah. And parents struggle with this, right? And we talked about this earlier when we had our first call is that parents struggle because there's so much social, talking about social cognition and social pressure and being in the in-group, there's so yeah. much pressure from the children. We had that discussion, right, where parents, are, the kids come and say, oh, but but my group are all allowed to use their phone. How come I'm not allowed to, et cetera? And you talked about how to deal with that as well. Yeah, I think we need to have more conversations with each other. I think um, going to another parent and saying, hey, you know, my daughter said this, is this also what's happening with you? Um, you know, us as parents need to talk to each other so that we've got a, we've got a really good understanding of what really is happening, right? Because kids will always say that. And often when you do that, you find out it's only one or two kids that are actually allowed to do whatever they want to do. Um, and the rest of them also are struggling with this. Most parents are struggling with this. So by getting together as a group and actually going, hey, well, how are we all going to manage this? You can actually manage it as a group. And then the kids don't feel as though they're being left out and, and they can sort of, yeah, try and gang up on you as well. But yeah, it's basically you gang up on them, right? You get together and you have a discussion as parents about what you all want and then you organise it that way. Because yeah, one, once one child gets it 24 hours a day or whatever, then all the rest are going to use that child's thing, whatever it happens yeah. to be, right? And so you need to, as a group, talk about it. And it's, it's surprising how many times you do that and the other parents will just go, yeah, I was concerned about this. How can we manage this? How can we do it? And then everybody does it together. And that, that's the way society should be, right? That's the way communities should 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 interact with each other rather than this, oh, I'm just going to give up and I'm going to allow them to do it or whatever. So um, there's someone in these spaces and working around. Can you see and predict the future? Um, look, there's lots of things that we could do and there's lots of things government could do to actually regulate this better than they are at the moment. Um, really simple things that they could do to regulate this better and make it safer for kids uh, and make it safer for us all. And I hope that happens. I hope that there's a change in the way we're doing things. I, I see it a lot like um, driving. So if you think about when we first had cars, we had no laws around cars, right? We didn't have, you didn't have to have a license. You, there was no age. There was no restrictions on the road. There was none of that sort of thing. And then more and more cars started driving around and people started getting hurt. So the government turned around and said, all right, you've got to be licensed to, to drive a car. And then they said, all right, there should be an age limit to the license. And then they said, all right, there should be road rules around and so on. And I think slowly the government, unfortunately too slowly, I think, is going to come to the realisation that it need, we need more controls over these things. Um, and hopefully schools as well. I mean, now primary schools here in New South Wales, uh, it's a, um, mobile phones are banned in primary schools, but they're not in high schools. It was almost banned in high schools and, and then there was a change in government and it didn't happen. But um, hopefully at some stage it'll also happen in high schools. Because again, that goes back to the socialisation. There's actually a private girls school here in Sydney where the girls actually got together and went to the principal and said, we want you to ban the mobile phones from the schoolyard because it's causing too many social issues. In this. And, and so the principal then banned the mobile phones based on the girls actually going to the principal and saying, hey, we don't want this because it's causing bullying and it's causing all these other issues, you know, social issues and so on. So, you know, I think people are becoming more aware. There's so much research now out there 
um, showing a lot of these issues. Um, I think the government's going to have to move, or I do a lot of work um, in the US as well. Um, and there's, sev there's several principals and senior principals in the US who believe that at some stage there's going to be a uh, group, um, there's going to be a class action against one of the provinces yes. yeah. in relation to what's happening yeah. in schools. I'm uh, waiting for that too issues. with um, Facebook yeah, and, and others because of, you know, the social dilemma and they know that they've hacked, they know what they're doing. It's not like it's, they, no. they didn't know it very, very early on, of course. No one does. No one understands no. unintended consequences of what you're doing because you're trying to do things for good in some sense, but they do understand completely now, as you know, Unilever paid for your imaging equipment um, people are trying to sell products against a large array of products. So people do know how to hack people. Netflix is yeah. another great example. I've been hacked on that one. Uh, I've been hacked with BlackBerry. I was hacked in the 2016 election, my first time ever in, in that Cambridge Analytica debacle. Yeah. That was me. I was yeah. part of that. Um, oh, wow. Yeah, because uh, it was my first US election I could vote in. Um yeah, it was scary, and I've, I've and I'm doing that. I I see it everywhere now, so I'm very aware of it, yeah. and I don't want to think that I don't have. I'm not making my own choices or opinions. I mean, a really simple way the government could actually change things wouldn't affect users who weren't doing anything wrong, but simply make all of the um, social media and all these apps take identification before they actually allow you to have membership, right? And so if they were required to, to take identification, you can still use whatever username you want, so you don't have to identify yourself. But if they had that, and then if someone does something inappropriate, the government can then find out who it is, it would actually stop the, most of the bullying and most of the trolling and most of the, right? Because people wouldn't do that because they'd know that they could be found out. Yes, now absolutely. you can have as many, yeah. Facebook well, it's now run by robots. <laughs> yeah, now you can do whatever you want. Whereas if they actually required you to have ID that you put down and you showed somebody that in these multimedia media companies, um, then that would be one way of really easily stopping a lot of the issues that we're having at the moment. Now, why they don't do that, I don't know. Um, but, you know, it would be one simple way to, to, to solve some of the problems. And of course, another... I'm also interested, Mark, in that experiment in the private girls' school you discussed. Did they? Did you get feedback on what happened as a consequence of them banning the phones? Yeah, that's much much better. Um, the, the issues around the um, they then started socialising at lunch times. They actually set up the uh, several like there was. Um, they used to have a chess club, which hadn't been run for many years. Girls asked them to start up another chess club so they could play chess at lunchtime. Um, the softball and things like that started being played at lunchtime. The principal said for the first time, the girls are borrowing the softball equipment. Oh, at so They're wanting to actually get involved in, you know, different clubs and so on. They started a, um, a knitting club as well because they wanted to, to do something social with each other. Um, yeah, the multiple different clubs got set up by the students as a result of the fact that they were bored. And it's important to be bored, right? Because then you come Very up with important. I teach uh, that. To, I say that to my daughter all the time. The mo most important skill you can learn is to be bored. 
and to sit with it and and to sustain it and it's really good for the brain it's so good for learning it's so because you know consolidation is all about sitting with something so that it can be you know built into the brain basically yeah yeah and all, and art art clubs which you'd be you i know you've got a big um interest in you know drawing and things like and coloring in and so on and there was yeah two art clubs was set up, I forget what the two were, but yeah, they set up two different art clubs, which are two different days at lunchtime, uh, where they open up the arts area and they can do, I think one's drawing and one's something else. Um, yeah, so these different clubs, which are really important for socialisation and connection, as I was talking before, you know, in groups, creating these in groups, so that they actually feel as though Yeah, absolutely. Because I, I think we need to let the audience know, just from a brain development perspective, bullying is not like... Bullying is a serious thing in terms of adverse childhood experiences effect on the teenage or young brain development. It does impact, as you, we talked about the amygdala earlier, this is a really old structure in the brain that can what, what um, psychiatrists or psychologists deal with every day is social anxiety. And that's the thing that's driving a lot of it is this lack, it, it, you can call it bullying or the lack or a feeling of not fitting in, whether you're bullied or not has a big impact on our mental health, as you've mentioned, but it's because of how it impacts the brain. So yes, it's not, so it is a serious thing. It's not just something to be taken. Cause I think um, as parents, it's a struggle when your kids, to, and I, I've dealt with this when I was raising my own um, and they come home and say something and, you know, about being bullied and you'd feel, and I, I know a lot of parents in this situation where they feel helpless in that moment. Cause you don't want to tell the teacher, for example, at school, cause you know, they might get bullied more. Mm-hmm. even though they're trying to deal with it, but they can't, you can't deal with it at the adult level. It's got to be dealt with, as you say, socially by the children mm-hmm. to learn how to deal with it, right? Because it's a lifelong skill you're learning. Yeah. So it's a hard one. <laughs> yeah, but everything that's one. worthwhile is really hard, you know, and I think Absolutely. by avoiding it, by running away, leaving school, you know, by avoiding these things, then we don't learn how to deal because bullying exists forever, in my opinion. Mm. across our lifespan, even in the aged care homes, whatever you want to say, that people don't change their character unless they're changing how they change their brain, right? Yeah, unless they end up with some sort of awful, yeah. Yeah, well, well, they do, but then they become the worst. Sometimes that character that they had gets amplified from what I've seen too. So I think these skills are such important skills that, like they're as important as maths and English is learning these social skills, aren't they? And we don't tend to teach them like that, do we, as, it, as that important? It's something you've got yeah. to navigate on your own almost. It's kind of funny like that. Well, I think they're more important. I mean, all the 21st century skills that we talk about, right, they, they first talk about, you know, computer literate, which is nonsense because um, I, all the IT jobs are actually going to Asia. So, you know, becoming computer literate is going to be irrelevant in 10 years time because all the jobs are gone. But then they talk about uh, communication. They talk about you know, emotional you know, intelligence. They talk about um, leadership skills and so on. All those are the social skills, right? And, they, and, and that's what's really important. And that's what's going to be important in the next 20, 30, 40, 50 years, 100 years, 200 years, 2 million years. Right? For us because, to sustain ourselves. Uh, yeah, because <laughs> we need to actually collaborate with each other. We and not to, to burn actually, out. As a species. As a species, yeah. Hopefully, if we're still around in two million years, it'll be those social skills that'll still be there um, and still be so important. 
and, is, and, and this is the bit people don't understand, in my opinion, is it, it's a physical part of the brain that you train like you're learning mathematics. You can't yes. do mathematics and then you keep practicing, keep practicing pre- and or anything, language, um, reading. You know, we're happy to talk about them as a learning skill and that you take time and practice and it takes, you know, year one, year two, up to when you finish school and, you, and you're building on that skill set across the whole school. But we don't talk about social skills, in my opinion, in the same way that this is this is step one. And then you keep practicing that until you've got it. And then that will build that part of the brain. Do you know what I mean? We don't talk about it, in my opinion, in in the same. And that's where I like neuroscience and imaging and the new research and hopefully to change the way people think about what people are doing or what they can't do is something that they could be learnt to do or taught to do, if you know what I mean. Yeah, everything that we can't do is just something we haven't learned yet. And that's, now that isn't that an interesting song? I love that. I love that quote. <laughs> that's mine. <laughs> yeah, yeah, and it is. It's we we don't our brain. We now know that the, the, the genetic material that we have that, that determines who we are as people is very very little. Right, the rest of it is all formed through experience. Even our visual pathways, the pathways from our retina. 2v1 those are actually formed based on how much light we receive and the random light that we receive and so on when we're in the womb and then when we first come out and that determines whether or not we can have binocular vision and whether or not the lgn is striated and whether v1 striated. all those things aren't determined by our genes they're determined by experience in the womb and then experience once we're first born and how far things are away and all those even that, the fundamental things, they're all determined by our experience. So we learn how to wire up all of our brain and all of the abilities we have are determined by those experiences, by us actually learning how to do them. And Not some people just, some people can, uh, in my, and it is a spectrum, right? Some people are just born with different mutations, different genetic susceptibilities, different gifts, if you want to call it. You know, the brain is still has a hardware that the experience is acting on, which can make an individual brain difference, right? From someone that yeah, it, has autism or not has autism uh, yeah. in terms of their experiences and how it impacts that um, brain wiring. Yeah. So when you've got an abnormality, that's when the, the genetic material isn't right. And so therefore you can't do the normal learning to actually get those connections. And that's, I think, different. But when you're talking about the normal brain, the normal brain, anybody can really become anything they want to be as long as they learn how to do it. You, you know, if you talk to a, a very good friend who's uh, an amazing artist, right? And if you talk to him, all he did during school and all those years was to doodle and he used to get in trouble all the time because he was, he was always drawing, right? And he became an amazing artist because he was always drawing. And, and that's all he did. He did it all the time. And that's why he became such an amazing artist. Now, if he hadn't drawn all the time, he wouldn't have become an amazing artist, right? He would have become something else. Basically. I also think, um, I do think, though, that some people, and there's a lot of research around this, that geniuses can be born to impoverished environments. So, so they're born in places where they don't get the right nutrition or access. 
And they, they actually are born with a genius-like brain, but they don't get to act on that potential because of the environment that they're growing up in. So this is an, this is an interesting opposite of where the environment can actually make your brain go backwards, so to speak. Yeah. Yeah, again, it's all about the learning, right? You've got to actually have that learning environment. To and the food thrive. to and the... Got to actually, yeah, yeah. So the environment overall yeah. um, is really important. You And sleep, right? Sleep is critical. And yeah. something, again, which is affected more now because teenagers are sleeping much less than they should. Um, and that's affecting social cognition um, because we now know that when you sleep is actually when you... A, when you learn but also when you um, learn all the alternatives, right? Because we know that you're doing this fast forward um, rehearsal of what happened during the day, but that is also a whole bunch of rehearsals of the different things that could have happened during the day. And we now know that teenagers actually, A, reset their emotional hardware in their brain during that time, but they also um, learn a lot of different um, social interactions. So, you know, they might go... I went into school today and I saw so-and-so and they ignored me, so I ignored them and then we didn't talk to each other all day. But then they'll go, oh, I walked into school today and I called out to so-and-so and they called out back to me. So we, so they go through what all the other options are that they could have done, so they'll actually behave differently the next day. And further. And if, But they've got to get enough sleep to do that, right? They've got to actually be yeah. sleeping the nine, ten hours a night to go through all those stages to actually have that opportunity to learn all those really important social things without actually experiencing them. Yes, and, and it's not just the yeah, school, really is it? It's sleep. also our family home environment that sets the foundations for all of this too. I was reading from Dr. Nessie's work and some other people that I've been following where they talk about how they grew up in an environment that were in a family that wasn't social. And they're an only mm. child, so they end up doing a lot of reading to take their brain to other places, imaginary places outside yeah. there to imagine what that would be like to be going and exploring or whatever, that kind of thing. So, you know, we're setting up people's, you know, we, we talk a lot about genetics, but the environment has a big impact. And I don't know what your feeling is about the new research around microRNAs and memory formation. And, you know, demonstrate across many species that microRNAs, um, which we used to call junk DNA, of course, and, <laughs> um, you know, these are having a big impact. And, and in fact, you can inherit uh, memories in synaptic connections, which would make a lot of sense to me, uh, across many generations, three generations. Um, right. For, for obesity, yeah, not... for example, things like that. Yeah. Yeah, I, I'm not... I like I, yeah I'm not familiar with that research like in depth um it's just something that I haven't studied a lot so it's but I do I I was society for neuroscience but just before covid um in, in the US and I was amazed I I saw this picture where they were actually um uh imaging inside neurons mm -hmm active neurons so they're actually showing the activity that was going on inside a neuron now we know you know the booms yeah. of neurons connections and so on and so we've always said that's extremely complicated and yeah. never gonna get out. but then they showed this and yeah. there's like thousands 
of all these different things going on inside each of the neurons. Yes. And it well, wasn't just random. It was actually, yeah. Well, they're and now showing just, astrocytes too. Just last week or the week before, astrocytes are playing a big role in neuronal signaling. Not just it's, as, again, not just as mopping up um, toxi, mm. toxins and as we always thought. Because, I mean, I try to tell people this site They'll say to me, how come you're saying that now? Whereas three years ago, you said something else. Well, I said science is advancing knowledge and you've got to stay up. Otherwise, you're just never going to change your mind about how things work because you'll think it is what it was, say, 20 years ago, which is how if I look back on my 20 years ago, I was in a completely different understanding of the brain. And it's and we talked the brain didn't change back then because I was working at in visual neuroscience at ANU and the John Curtin School with Richard Mark. I don't know if you remember him, but he's, yes, yes, he was yes, quite yes. a, he was, I used to give, you know, seminars with him and he was quite a force. And um, mm. unfortunately he's not with us, but yeah, he, we taught things were static, you know, especially from the visual neuroscience systems, but even that's now being all thrown out the window, you know? So, yeah. So yeah, everything keeps changing and, and, and just understand that's, it's not that we're right or wrong. It's just that it just takes a lot of time, doesn't it, as new knowledge and technology and our capacity to understand things moves forward. But I think in science, as you and I know, there's so many fights along the way because, <laughs> because we end up getting rewarded for what we, what we discovered, you know. So then someone comes along and shifts the paradigm. It's a big, takes ages, basically. Yeah, yeah, paradigm shifts take forever to actually be established. Yeah. Plus, the textbooks take forever. To they take written. even more time now. Yeah, yeah, because you can't read, you, yeah, they don't rewrite textbooks every year. They take 10, 15, 20 years before you rewrite a textbook yeah. or a new textbook comes out yeah. um, on a particular topic. So, yeah, and in the case uh, of yeah. the brain, this is a big problem because so many people are now saying they're neuroscientists as well, that are doing short mm. courses, et cetera. And I think, I think that's hard, a hard thing because you can't just, it, it, it's just not possible to really do that, I don't think. No, no. And I think that's a big problem with schools. I think that a lot of schools you know, get people in who have done a course or, you know, don't really have the fundamental understanding of the brain um, and are teaching the wrong things or are teaching things from 20 years ago that we know aren't true anymore. Yes. Um, yeah, and that, that does really frustrate me. Yeah, really brain-based learning. I was having this argument with someone on LinkedIn and people are joking, oh, yeah, like using a mouth to ease. You know, they think it's a joke calling it brain-based learning. What's the difference? Right. And like from my understanding of things that I think that's a great step forward to think like that because then you're thinking about the differences in the brain architecture between people and why they can't learn or, you know, versus everyone should be able to learn this particular thing at this particular age or stage, you know. I think that's a big advance, you know, and I think yeah. and us being able to see inside the brain and eventually I think the technology will be such that we can actually image everyone's brain in some sense. <laughs> mm. you know? So anyway, Mark, thank you so much for joining us. It was a, such a fascinating conversation. Thank you for, I, I really look forward to reading your book when it comes out. Can you say what the name of the book, you're not really set on the title yet, but it's maybe. Uh, I, in, I'm hoping it'll be something like The Connected Species, but yeah. that's what I, 
I like. We'll see if the editors like it. Yeah. So it's <laughs> a great read, and and also you you make it personable so that people it's not just a straight neuroscience book. Um, you're making it for the general public as well, which is really great with personal stories and it's really accessible. So I really encourage everyone when it comes out to grab it. Um, Mark does a lot of work in schools around devices and social cognition, and I think it's very valuable work. And And I hope that we can get the schools to turn off phones and maybe we should start about families, including myself, in that. <laughs> Fingers crossed. <laughs> Fingers crossed. Um, but it will make a difference, won't it? Make a big difference. Definitely. So yeah. thank you for your time, Mark. Thank you, Selena. Thanks for having me.